0: Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. We are returning to our verse by verse study of Matthew after the holidays. Matthew chapter 12. Navigate over there. The topic the Pharisees twice tried to trip up Jesus by accusing him of breaking Sabbath laws. The title of our message, Back in the Sabbath Again. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to be here on many levels. Right now we want to, as much as is humanly possible, pay undivided attention to your word and we want the aid of your Holy Spirit, the supernatural help, Lord, to really grasp and get a grip on what you're teaching us and especially seeing Jesus revealed in this text in his mercy, kindness, and grace. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said amen. How do unchurched Americans view contemporary Christianity? I'm glad you asked. The latest research I could find was a 2008 Pew Research poll. The summary said a full 72% of the people interviewed said they think the church, quote, is full of hypocrites. Now, our usual response to the accusation that the church is full of hypocrites is to say something sarcastic like, don't let that stop you from coming. There's always room for one more. (laughs) Yeah, gotcha. But before we too quickly dismiss every accusation of hypocrisy, it's instructive to realize that Jesus used the H word. In fact, if my search engine and e-sword is accurate, Jesus is the only person in the New Testament to directly call certain people hypocrites, and he does it more than 17 times in the Gospels. Now, here's the kicker. He didn't accuse just anyone of hypocrisy. He accused the men who thought themselves and who were thought of by others to be the most spiritual men. Men like the some 6,000 Pharisees who were straining to keep the extreme letter of God's law. They were definitely trying hard to keep God's law and they started well, but they ended up going about it all wrong. I, for one, don't want to think I am trying hard to keep God's word having started well only to end up going about it all wrong. Now, we're going to encounter some of those Pharisees in our text today, and as we do, we get a glimpse at their going about it all wrong with regard to the keeping of the weekly Sabbath. Jesus gives us two markers, or you might say characteristics, by which to gauge whether or not our version of obedience to God is right or wrong. They are mercy and kindness. And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, keeping God's word will increase, not decrease your showing mercy. And number two, keeping God's word will encourage, not discourage your showing kindness. Let's talk first about mercy in verses one through eight. The apostle Paul asked the Christians in Galatia, in the book of Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? The Pharisees had done just that and it should serve to warn anyone who wants to keep God's word to be careful not to do the same. The origin of the Pharisees is uncertain. Some scholars suggest they go back as far as the book of Malachi where you read of a group of obedient Jews whom God eavesdrops upon because he is so pleased with their spiritual conversation about him. Other scholars say they began in the time of the Maccabean revolt against the Greek ruler Antiochus IV, also known in history as Antiochus Epiphanes. That was about 165 BC. It was an effort to protect Judaism from contamination by Greek influences. And so it was a group of Jews who wanted to keep Judaism from becoming Hellenized or or influenced by the Greeks. The name Pharisee in its Hebrew form means separatists or the separated ones. They were also known as kazadim, which means loyal to God or loved of God. They meant to radically obey God by remaining separate from the world, but they became so extreme and so narrow in their focus on the letter of the law over time that they lost the spirit of the law. When their Savior and Messiah, Jesus Christ, was among them, they not only didn't acknowledge him, they accused him of being a lawbreaker. And so let's watch it play out in our text with regard to the Sabbath. Verse one, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now you have to understand that God nowhere in his word ever stated that it was wrong to pluck heads of grain to eat on the Sabbath. In their attempt to define what constituted work, the Pharisees had determined that plucking grain was a form of harvesting and therefore it violated the command to do no work on the Sabbath. And so the, the idea of the Sabbath was you're, you're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And so these guys, starting off sincerely but deteriorating into legalism, they said, well, what constitutes work? We don't want to violate the Sabbath, so what constitutes work? And as they would get together over the years and over the decades and over the centuries, somebody would say, well, well how about plucking grain?" because it was a common thing in that culture. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy said it was okay for a traveler to pluck grain off of the ends of your um, uh, crop and all. And so they said, well, what about plucking grain on the Sabbath? Is that something we can do? And they got their heads together and they decided that plucking grain was actually harvesting the grain. And since harvesting is work, therefore, plucking grain was against the Sabbath. And so these these are how these rules come into being. Notice that they blame Jesus for what his disciples were doing. Like it or not, the impression folks have of who Jesus is and of what he is like comes from how we act and react and from what we say and do. I can't really fault a non-believer for thinking that knowing the Lord should radically affect us and make positive changes in our lives. Jesus doesn't only save us, He goes on saving us, changing us from glory to glory into his own image. And so uh, I'm not saying that we're all hypocrites. Uh, Obviously, everybody's a hypocrite on some level because we're not perfected. But I have to look, if if a non believer looks at my life or your life, we're telling them that you need to have an encounter with the living God, Jesus Christ. His spirit will come inside of you and he will effect radical, amazing changes. If they don't see those changes, That's a problem because we're we're telling them something that we're not living out. Now, Jesus' answer to the Pharisees will mention a king and then the priests and then a prophet. You just couldn't catch Jesus. He was always ready to answer you in a very profound way. It says in verse three, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of... Of God, and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now, this is a story, obviously, from the Old Testament, where David was on the run from King Saul, and he definitely violated the letter of God's law when he and his men went into the tabernacle and they took the holy bread that was on display, and they ate it to satisfy their hunger. God did not rebuke him, and even the Pharisees would not be so bold as to condemn David for violating the law of God. Yet here they were rebuking Jesus for something that was their own interpretation of what constituted work on the Sabbath. Now, when Jesus said, have you not read, it was really quite a slap in the face, so to speak. It indicated they were not familiar enough with God's word. Now, they certainly knew this passage. They knew the Bible backwards and forward, the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forward, but they didn't apply it properly. In their debate and discussion about whether or not plucking grain was work on the Sabbath, somebody should have raised his hand and said, hey, how about when David went into the uh, tabernacle and ate the showbread, violating the uh, temple regulations? What do we think about that? And they would have come to the conclusion that Jesus is going to come to, but instead they only were interested in interpreting the law their own way by their own uh, kind of rules. And so they were reading and studying God's word all right, but they were going about it the wrong way, trying to nail down the letter, but missing the spirit. Jesus had appealed to David. It's interesting because David was the rightful king of Israel, but he was not recognized yet as king and he was exiled. Similarly, Jesus was the rightful king of Israel, but he was not recognized yet, and he would be rejected. And so not only is the Lord answering them doctrinally and biblically, he's also using examples that if they were really thinking uh, would show who he is uh, and uh, fulfilling the typologies of the Old Testament. Verse 5 says, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Profane, uh, profaning the Sabbath, how do they do that? Well, while others rested on the Sabbath, while it was a day of rest, no one was to do any work, the on-duty priests in the temple actually worked twice as hard as priests normally did. There were double sacrifices to offer on the Sabbath. There was fresh showbread to make and old showbread to change out. And if a male child's eighth day of life fell on a Sabbath, the priest must nevertheless perform his circumcision. And so even though the Jews were commanded to keep the Sabbath and do no work, on a regular basis for centuries, the priests had already been working twice as hard as they normally did every Sabbath day. And they show us that work that is done for God on the Sabbath is not work in God's eyes, or at least it's not a work to be avoided. Verse six, yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Now, the argument Jesus was putting forward was that in God's economy, the ministry of the temple took priority over the Sabbath. It thus follows that if someone greater than the temple was there, he too would take priority over any Sabbath rules, especially those that were simply man-made. The tragedy in all of this is that the Pharisees in their zeal to be spiritual could not recognize that the one greater than the temple was actually in their midst. The Lord next appealed to a prophet, the prophet Hosea in verse seven. He says, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless The quote is from the sixth chapter of Hosea, verse six. The entire verse reads like this, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And by the way, uh, when Jesus or uh, the apostles, when they pull a quote out of the Old Testament, a lot of times it stands for the entire verse or the entire chapter or the entire context because that's how Jews communicated the word of God. Here on Sunday morning, I can tell you, turn to Matthew chapter 12 because your Bible is divided into not just books but chapters and verses. Well, the Old Testament scriptures the Jews had weren't divided that way. They didn't have those numbers. And, and that's why Jesus, for example, when he was on the cross, And being crucified, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every Jew there would know that he was making a reference to Psalm 22. He was telling them to read Psalm 22. And when you read the entire Psalm, not just that opening verse, you realize that it was a Psalm that predicted the suffering of their Savior on the cross some 400 years before he came to earth. And so a lot of times you'll see these quotes and they stand for something greater than just the few words that are given. So Jesus is saying, hey, you wanna go back and check out Hosea chapter six and at least verse six and, and realize that God has always desired mercy over sacrifice. Again, the Lord is reprimanding them for misapplying God's word. Moral duties always outweigh ceremonial regulations. God doesn't set rules and rituals ahead of showing mercy to people, which reveals the true knowledge of God because mercy is one of his attributes. And then in verse 8, he says plainly, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, speaking of himself. Now, Jesus didn't abolish the Sabbath for the Jews. Clearly, he observed it. He was, after all, on his way to synagogue to observe the Sabbath when this episode took place. But he claimed the right to properly interpret the Sabbath over the traditions of the Pharisees. He claimed a greater authority than the Pharisees had. In fact, he was claiming to be the one who instigated the Sabbath in the first place and who was its fulfillment. If Jesus didn't abolish the Sabbath, why don't we keep it as Christians? William MacDonald has a very excellent commentary on the Bible. It's a single volume commentary called the Believer's Bible Commentary. We carry it in the bookstore. I'd highly recommend it. You can also get it free online. Uh, through Esword. He's got a great perspective on the Sabbath and I want to borrow some of his thoughts on this uh, just since we're talking about the Sabbath and this comes up from time to time where friends of yours will say, oh, you know, you should keep the Sabbath or maybe you sometimes come across the Sabbath in the scripture and think, shouldn't we be meeting on Saturday and how do we keep the Sabbath? Well, here's what uh, H- McDonald says. He says, the Sabbath day was and always will be the seventh day of the week, Saturday, God rested on the seventh day after the six days of creation. He did not command man to keep the Sabbath day at that time, although he may have intended it as a principle to take one day of rest in every seven. The nation of Israel was commanded to keep the Sabbath when the Ten Commandments were given. In fact, in several places, Israel is told it is a special covenant between them and God. Very interesting when you're reading the Old Testament Uh, It it doesn't just say to keep the Sabbath, there's always a parenthesis or there's an addition where it says it's a covenant between Israel and God, and that tells me that it was never intended to be something that Gentiles had to do. The law of the Sabbath was different from the other nine commandments in that it is ceremonial while the others are moral. The only reason it's wrong to work on the Sabbath is because God said it was wrong. The other commandments are intrinsically wrong. And so when the Bible says, you know, thou shalt not murder, that's just wrong all the time. It, it's, it's intrinsically a wrong thing for a human being to do, whereas working on the Sabbath is God's, uh, only because God said it was wrong. Uh, it, you know, because work itself isn't wrong. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament, but never as a law, only as instructions for Christians living under grace. The commandment that is not repeated is the Sabbath commandment, and in fact, Paul the Apostle goes out of his way in Colossians to say, don't let anyone ever judge you regarding keeping a Sabbath. If you wanna say you're keeping the Sabbath, that's great, but you don't have to and no one should judge you or condemn you for not doing so. The distinctive day of Christianity is Sunday. It's the first day of the week. That's because the Lord rose from the dead on that day. On the next two Sundays, he met with his disciples. The Holy Spirit was given on a Sunday. The early disciples met on that day to break bread It's the day appointed by God on which Christians are told to set aside funds for the work of the Lord. The Sabbath was never changed from Saturday to Sunday. You get into some Christian groups who say that, well, we don't keep the Sabbath anymore, but the Sabbath is now Sunday and we should keep Sunday as a day of no work. The Sabbath is still Saturday. Nobody changed the Sabbath. The Lord's day is a completely different uh, animal. The Sabbath was a shadow, the substance is Christ, the resurrection of Christ marked a new beginning and the Lord's day signifies that. Jesus is our Sabbath. And by that I mean it is in a relationship with him that we find rest. L- last time we were in Matthew, it's been a while now or else you'd remember, but it's right there if you wanna read it. The end of chapter 11, Jesus said, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden in what? I will give you rest and then chapter 12 begins with this accusation that Jesus is not keeping the Sabbath. That's because Jesus is saying that I am your Sabbath. When you are in a relationship with me, you are walking in the Sabbath. There is no keeping of a you know, 24-hour period by which you become more spiritual. I've changed the ritual into a relationship. And listen, When we tell people, or if we were to tell people, you must keep the Sabbath, are we not adding something to the gospel of Jesus Christ? If I say to somebody, well, you need to, in order to be a real Christian, you have to keep the Sabbath, then I've just told them that salvation is by grace through faith plus the keeping of the Sabbath. It's no different than the groups that say you must be baptized then it makes salvation by grace through faith plus the work of baptism. And there are no works involved in salvation. It's only by grace through faith alone. And then when you get into keeping the Sabbath, as we've talked about many times before, you end up in these pharisaical kinds of circles where what constitutes work? If I went out of my house this morning and my car had a flat tire... Is it work to change the tire to go to church? Uh, and it, it gets crazy. Pretty soon, you're just kind of paralyzed in your house. A few weeks ago, I told you about the Sabbath mode on ovens, where you have, you have to have refrigerators and ovens that have a Sabbath mode, so that you can, because if you open the refrigerator door, you're kindling a fire, which is Ill, Ill, unlawful to do on the Sabbath. Mind you, God never said those things are unlawful to do. That's, when I was a young Christian, I didn't understand this, but God didn't set out all those rules about what constitutes work, men did. God said, rest on the seventh day, and then he told the Jews, don't do any work, uh, normal work on the Sabbath, and then the guys got together and said, this is work, and that's work, and this is work, and they always choose things that are a burden to you, but don't seem to bother them. And so, uh, you know, um, People are always deciding what constitutes work, and if they decide they should change their tire, well, that's not really work. And so it becomes insane on that level. Now back to the text, Jesus, by his appeal to Scripture, shows that his disciples were guiltless. They had done nothing wrong by plucking grain. Nevertheless, the Pharisees condemned them based on their own interpretation of God's law. Now, don't overlook the statement in verse 1, the disciples were hungry. And then Jesus says, David did this when he was hungry. There's a real hunger here. Now, I'm not saying they were starving to death, that they would have died if they hadn't plucked grain. But they were genuinely hungry. And you have to understand that walking with Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't own anything. He didn't have anything. They had a, you know, they kept a money bag, and, uh, but they didn't have a lot of physical resources, and, and he was hung, they were hungry as itinerant missionaries. And so this would probably be their meal for that day. They were hungry. This wasn't just a snack along the way. If they had been truly reading God's word for the spirit of the law, the Pharisees would have shown the disciples mercy by offering them food. It has to do with perspective, does it not? So you're, you're sitting there, you're looking at these guys... These followers of Jesus, with Jesus, they're walking through a grain field and you understand that they're itinerant ministers, that they have hardly anything. Jesus said, I don't even have a place. I, any- I don't own anything. I don't have a place to even stay. I don't have a house or anything like that. And you could look at them and think, I wonder if those guys are hungry. Or you can just watch them until they touch grain and say, there they go, breaking the Sabbath law. Let's condemn them. It's just how easy it is to go from being a normal person to being a Pharisee. They should have looked upon them to show them mercy, to see how they might minister to them. That that really needs to be our first thought towards everybody. How can I minister to this person? It doesn't mean you compromise the word of God. It doesn't mean you back off from the truth of God's word. You're always speaking the truth in love. You can remain separate from the world. You don't have to be drawn into the culture of the world or the things of the world, but we're about seeking to minister to people. Now I don't want to mention anything specific because these issues can be complex in terms of a Christian's response to the issues in our society today and what we should and shouldn't do or say. But in general, just thinking in general, are we more prone to a boycott or to throwing a barbecue, because that's essentially the Pharisee. The attitude of the Pharisee is always to do something harsh and unloving to make sure that everybody knows how spiritual they are. And I think what God is saying here is that they should be about showing mercy. And if they really thought that what they had, their relationship with God, was was the right way, then they shouldn't be afraid of, 12 followers of an itinerant minister who were hungry. They should invite him over for lunch and share with them the better way of knowing God. In whatever we choose, I'm not saying we can never choose boycotts or that we should always you know, do something else. That's not it at all. If you get that, you're getting the wrong thing. But whatever we choose to do, if, even if it is a boycott, we need to be showing mercy because non-believers need to know God desires mercy over sacrifice, that he's not about rules and regulations as much as he is about relationship. Again, we don't don't violate his rules, we don't compromise his regulations, but we must show mercy. And we need to show kindness in verses 9 through 14. The word kindness isn't used in this next episode, but it's implied when Jesus talks about a trapped animal. Because in Proverbs twelve ten you read, a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. And so there's a uh, comparison of kindness in this. The Pharisees, <coughs> excuse me, version of the law, led them to show more kindness to animals than to people, and that's a poor representation of God's character. It just is. Now, when he had departed from there, verse 9, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they said that, that they might accuse him. Pharisees challenged Jesus right in the midst of the synagogue. They had determined that you could act to save a life on the Sabbath, but you could do nothing proactive to affect healing. And so, if a person cut themselves and was bleeding, you could act to stop the bleeding, but that's all you could do until the sun went down on Saturday evening. You keep them from bleeding to death, but you couldn't do anything to help. You couldn't stitch up the wound. You just had to apply pressure to it and wait for the sun to go down, because again, they'd gotten together and said, "Hey, what about healing? What about medical profession? You know?" And and, um, and they had come up with these crazy conclusions. So Jesus, in verse 11, said to them, "'What man is there among you who has one sheep, "'and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, "'will not lay hold of it and lift it out? "'Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? "'Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath.'" Now, the Israelites dug pits as traps against wild animals that would attack their flocks, and so occasionally a sheep would wander off and fall into one of those pits. Regardless the day of the week, Sabbath or not, an Israelite was expected to jump in and save his sheep and no Pharisee would think of accusing him of breaking any law, gods or man's. Again, I hate to harp on it, but straining to figure out how to properly keep the letter of the Sabbath leads to bizarre conclusions that make Christians seem like hypocrites or they make them actual hypocrites. Whatever a person does, Think about the sabbath must be qualified by this principle. Jesus just gave us It is lawful to do good on the sabbath If you conclude that something good is work that should be avoided then you're just wrong according to the lord of the sabbath And then he said to the man stretch out your hand and he stretched it out and it was restored as whole as the other now technically neither Jesus nor the man did any work. This is an interesting example because G- they said is it okay to heal on the habit uh, uh, heal on the sabbath? And then Jesus heals him, but he doesn't do any work to heal him. No physical therapy was performed, no manipulation. He didn't grab his hand and start massaging it to try and get it to work. By the way, how many of you have been to physical therapy? I love physical therapy. I hurt myself just to get physical therapy. I've only had it a few times in my life for my back, but I love it. They give you that TENS unit. They attach that TENS unit to your back. I just crank that thing up and just a million volts going through my body. It's just amazing. If I was rich, I would hire my own physical therapist. Maybe you wouldn't. But anyway, and I'd eat in and out at the same time. So... So anyway, he didn't do anything like that. He just spoke the word. And the man simply stretched out his hand, which he really was unable to do. This was an act of faith, and faith is not a work. So neither Jesus nor this man did a work. Technically, they didn't violate the Pharisees' own limited interpretation of work, but still, verse 14 says, they went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Jesus used the example of a trapped animal to establish that the Pharisees were way off base in their understanding of God's heart. I wonder if they got the subtle suggestion that here they were seeking to trap Jesus, that they were actively setting traps for him. In their zeal to obey the letter of God's law, they ended up treating their fellow Jews worse than they treated animals. And anyone who opposed them was treated as a wild animal that needed to be destroyed. So the idea, it's very simple. They would help their sheep if it fell into a pit, but they didn't want to help human beings on the Sabbath. And people who opposed them, they considered wild animals that needed to be trapped and killed. I'm telling you, this, Jesus really gets to the heart of things pretty quickly here. Now, you never know from looking at these so-called spiritual men that God was kind. In fact, looking at them, you would conclude that God is cruel. I submit to you that any interpretation of God that makes him seem cruel is wrong because God is not cruel. We cannot therefore look at things like suffering and eternal torment in hell and say, oh well, he's God, he can do whatever he wants. We can't say something cruel isn't cruel simply because God does it. And that's what some theologies do. This is their explanation of certain things. You say, well, well, what you've suggested here seems cruel. They say, well, it would be cruel for a human being, but it's not cruel for God because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. There's a... Film a few years ago, Frost Nixon. I don't know if you saw it or not, but there's a uh, in the trailer that ran, and and in the movie, there's a line of dialogue that I'll never forget. It was a very interesting line of dialogue. David Frost is interviewing uh, President, former President Richard Nixon, and at one point, he asks him a question about legalities, and Nixon says, "If the president does it, it's not illegal." I love it, it's just a fantastic statement. Whatever you think of Nixon, it's a powerful moment in the film, and it's a powerful, he basically says, if I do it, if the president does it, by definition, it's not illegal. Too many believers justify their theological conclusions that way. They say, well, yeah, that seems cruel, but since God did it, it's not cruel. If you did it, it would be cruel, but since God did it, it's actually loving. That's just not true. There's a, a great illustration that, that uh, Baptists sometimes use. They talk about a situation where an off-duty fireman is driving down the street and he sees smoke and flames coming out of an orphanage. And uh, no one's even called 911 yet. There's 11 children in the orphanage. So he jumps out of his car because he's a fireman and he goes in, no gear, no turnouts, nothing. and uh, But he finds he's got plenty of time to get all 11 children out. He picks three of them arbitrarily, carries them out, and then lets the other eight burn to death. And then afterwards at the press conference, he says, I'm a hero because I saved three children. Somebody asks, could you have saved the other eight? And he says, yes, but it's not unloving because I'm a fireman and, and I'm a hero. And we would say, well, you're a jerk is what you are. That's that is unloving. That's what, you could have saved all 11 but you only chose to save 3. That's not normal kindness. But there are whole theologies that say that's what God does. God decided he just wasn't going to save some people. They can't get saved because they're not chosen before the foundations of the world. And so therefore you can preach the gospel to them night and day, day and night, there's no way they're going to get saved. And you say, "Well, that seems cruel." You know what? It is cruel. And the only answer is, well, but God did it, so it's not cruel. Oh, that's stupid to use a theological term. (laughs) I'm not saying we have all the answers. I mean, these are serious issues that we need to struggle with, but you can't cop out on God and say, well, my conclusion makes God seem unloving and cruel and mean, but it's okay for him because whatever he does, you know, is different. God has to act better than human beings, not worse than them. And so just be careful where your conclusion... This whole study this morning, it's really not about the Sabbath. It's about how people become Pharisees. The Pharisees started well, and they became what we call Pharisees today. Paul said to the church in Galatia, hey, you started well. You're not going to be made perfect in the flesh by keeping the letter of the law. You need to continue to walk in grace. The majority of non-believers in our country, like it or not, they think that the majority of Christians are modern-day Pharisees who are trying to be made perfect by the flesh. Rather than immediately discuss or uh, dismiss rather that accusation, we should examine ourselves. Do I think generally I and we are hypocrites? No. And I'm happy to say to somebody, hey, come to church, we could use one more hypocrite. You know, that, I understand the theory there. At the same time, we're not perfect, and I do see that having begun well, we can deteriorate, and that's often the case with Christians. And so as a serious student of the Bible, I want to know if that's happening to me. I want to remain separate from the world without becoming a Pharisee. And one way to gauge how I'm doing is to check my life for mercy and kindness. If I'm showing less mercy and less kindness than I used to, then I'm on the fast track to being a Pharisee. I'm into hypocrisy. And so it's a tenuous thing. We need to to maintain the word of God, never compromise, remain separate from the world, and also show mercy and kindness, grace and love, and reflect the fact that God is seeking after men to save them. God's kindness is often called his loving kindness. It is an active, faithful love. It's displayed for us right there in the Garden of of Eden, right at the beginning, after Adam and Eve sinned, God came, and in his loving kindness, he sought them out, he covered their sin, with the skins of animals, promising to come and die for them one day. No compromise, absolutely no compromise on the fact that they were sinners and and that they had brought death and destruction into the universe, but still mercy, kindness, and grace. It's a hard balance to maintain, but with the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives, we can do it, amen? Let's pray.